Hey there, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. Uh, this is not just any old episode. This is Christmas week. It's a Christmas episode of the Bible and Life podcast. So uh, wherever you're at, from my family to yours, Merry Christmas. I pray you have a wonderful Christmas holiday, a wonderful time with family and friends, a wonderful time reflecting on what God did for us in the person of Jesus. And that's really what I want to do on this episode. In view of the fact that uh, we're coming into the Christmas season, I want to offer a bit of a Christmas reflection on a passage from the Gospel of John. But just before I jump into that, just a quick heads up, this will be the last Bible in Life podcast for the year. No podcast next week. Uh, and, and if you haven't checked out the listener's commentary, I will be posting some recordings for the listener's commentary next week. And so if you haven't checked out the listener's commentary, it might be a great time to check that out as well. You can find that at listenerscommentary.com or you can just in your podcast player search for the listener's commentary. You should be able to find that as well. The listener's commentary is where I just teach straight through books of the New Testament in clear straightforward, down-to-earth sort of language to help us really understand what's going on in those books. So if you're looking for something to listen to next week, might check out the listener's commentary. All right. In this episode, in view of the fact that it is Christmas, I want to just reflect on another passage like I did last week that pertains in some ways to what God did for us at Christmas time. I want to reflect on uh, John chapter 1. Listen to these words. It says this. This is the way the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then you skip down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John starts his gospel this way by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I want to just take particularly that verse 14 and just offer a, a little bit of a Christmas reflection on it. Notice what it says there in John 1:14. the word became flesh and it happened in a moment, in one almost perfectly ordinary moment. In that moment, a young Jewish maiden gave birth, and there was, in so many ways, nothing unusual about it. Labor pain, sweat, exhaustion, strained breathing, and the groans of childbirth. But in the rather inglorious event of childbirth, somehow, miraculously, God entered our world. The Word became flesh. But it didn't look like it. <laughs> to those present in that room where that newborn baby was first held and first seen, to those present, just another child was born. He looked so incredibly ordinary. The word became flesh. And just ponder that. Like he, he became flesh. He existed from all eternity as God. But he became something more. He became flesh. God chose his own mother. God became an embryo. God slept in a womb. God passed through the birth canal, the eternal, infinite, almighty God, with an umbilical cord, depending on another person for life. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's what it means when we say the word became flesh. It means the almighty, now as a helpless baby, finding contentment from his cries in the arms of a teenage Jewish girl. 
As one writer put it, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid foods or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. That's Philip Yancey in his book on Jesus. To maintain his life, this little word become flesh required food. He had to learn how to walk and talk, to read and to reason. He needed to be taught the scriptures and how to pray. And according to Jewish custom, he'd learn his father's trade, how to use a hammer and a planer and a chisel. And he even had thumbs that he could hit with that hammer and it really would hurt. To all appearances, he was just a typical Jewish baby and boy and man. Nothing that would cause him to stand out. He was, to all appearances, just Jesus, just an average, ordinary Jew, but in the person of that average, ordinary Jew, first born as a little tiny baby, the Word had become flesh. The Word, the very revelation of God, the final expression and proclamation of who God is and what God was up to in the universe, the Word, God's ultimate communication of himself. When God chose to communicate himself most fully to us, he translated himself into terms we could understand. Just Jesus, the word become flesh. The author of the drama of human history wrote himself into the play. The same God who spoke the world into existence from nothing now spoke grace and forgiveness to the tax collector and the prostitute in the person of Jesus. The same God who spoke the seas into existence and placed boundaries on the waves sailed on the Sea of Galilee. The same God who with authority and power parted the Red Sea so his people could pass right through it and then let it come crashing back down on the Egyptian army. That same God looks square into the eyes of the religious leaders of his days and pronounce, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The same God who staggered Isaiah and whom the angels worship crying, Holy, 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 invaded the temple, overturning tables of the moneylenders. The same God who had answered thousands of prayers now would pray prayers of his own. The same God who had fed the birds and the cattle now grew hungry and had to eat. Somehow, there, out in Bethlehem, the Word became flesh. Birth, life, calluses, sweat, blood, tears, dusty sandaled feet, hunger, thirst, fatigue, and even death. These are all very ungodlike things to experience, but God chose it. He chose to endure the frailty of human living in order to invite us to be his friends. God came near when the word became flesh. And the text says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like if you could choose your own parents, what kind of parents would you choose? Where would they live? In the big city or small town? Would they have lots of money, enough money, or barely enough to make it? Would they be religious or not? And would it matter to you as long as they were good to you? What kind of car would your parents drive? What kind of job would they have, right? Well, God was the only one who chose his own parents. And you can find out a lot about somebody by how they answer the kinds of questions about the parents they would choose. And so it is with God. God chose a young peasant girl and a carpenter. 
And the story indicates that at his birth, they were quite poor, so poor that by their society standards, they had to sacrifice just two pigeons because they couldn't afford a lamb. That's who God chose. Such poor villagers lived in small homes made from natural resources around them. They possessed few furnishings, maybe a table, maybe a couple chairs, maybe a wooden bench. They had uh, reed mats to sleep on. In the dry season, the house teemed with insects and dust filled the air. In the wet season, the ceiling might have dripped mud. They lived in small homes and small towns among an oppressed people in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. And that's who God chose to be his parents. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled right here in the real world. He pitched his tent here in first century Palestine, a place uh, divided with religious tension, a place divided with political tension, a place of foreign occupation. That's where God chose to become flesh. And it was a place that waited in great anticipation for God to act. They were expecting surely God would save his people. And God did. He dwelt among us. Into this world, God chose to be born. He's seen cruelty and corruption in high places. He knows the heartache of this world. He's experienced it firsthand through the betrayal and the violence that he himself endured. In other words, he understands our plight on this broken down planet. He dwelt among us for the purpose of rescuing it. And then the text says, And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory, the sum total of what makes God, God, the beauty which makes God the center of unbroken praise, his glory, we beheld it when he became flesh. What if God was one of us? What if God became like us? Well, the reality is God did. What is God like? Well, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God thinking God's thoughts. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing God feeling how God feels. Jesus is God doing God things. When you see Jesus, you're seeing God in the flesh. That's the point John is making there in chapter 1, that Jesus is God with a bod, if you will. We're not saying a God became flesh or that there was a little bit of God in Jesus. What John is saying is the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The word was God and is God. It's not just a God or a little bit of God. The one true God, the creator God, the full glory of God, that one, he became flesh. The one who causes the sun to shine and who sends the rain so crops will grow. The one whose voice calls the doe to bring forth the fawn. The one who holds the seas and tells their proud ways for to stop. That God is the one who became flesh and whose glory we beheld in the person of Jesus. The God who's the inventor and controller of quarks and atoms and molecules. This one became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The, the Christmas carol, in fact, captures it incredibly well. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. How do you know what God is like? Well, we know what God is like because God has made himself known. We're not guessing. We're not hoping. We're not wondering. Jesus is very God of very God. 
And at the same time, he's very human, a very human. He's the unique son of God, the one and only from the Father, a human being who housed the full glory of God. And John and his friends saw it. They saw the glory of God fleshed out in Jesus when he turned the water to wine, when he interrupted a funeral procession and raised the deceased, a widow's only son. They saw it when he forgave the paralyzed man of his sins and enabled him to walk. They saw it when he nearly sank their boats with an oversized catch of fish or when he fed thousands of thousands of people with a little boy's sack lunch. They saw it when he sat the children on his lap and blessed them, or when he gladly welcomed and defended the prostitute against the faithfully religious, or when he went to a dinner party at a tax collector's house and called Lazarus out of the grave. They saw his glory full of grace and truth. And ultimately, John would tell us in his gospel that they saw his glory when he was beaten and pinned to a Roman cross and hung there bloodied and dying when he prayed for God the Father to forgive those who were executing him, God the Son. And then they saw his glory three days later when he stood there among them more alive than ever. His glory, the very glory of God fleshed out in Jesus, full of grace and truth. When we finally see God for what he really is like, what do we find? We find that he possesses a perfect balance, a complete blending of grace and truth. He's full of both. Not just a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. He maximizes both. He overflows with both grace and truth. Grace stoops to give someone a gift they don't deserve. And truth holds them accountable to the way things really are meant to be. And Jesus was full of both. He spoke with authority that amazed the crowd and scared some away. He elevated moral expectations. Avoiding murder was elevated to avoiding anger. Avoiding idolatry was elevated to avoiding lust and so on. He was agitated by cold-hearted legalists. With anger, he chased money changers from the temples. Truth. But at the same time, he was full of grace, warmth, welcome, kindness, generosity of spirit. You could see it in his eyes. There was a continual smile in his eyes that made, made folks know they would be received and welcomed by him. He could be moved with compassion and filled with pity. He sympathized with the leper and he dialogued with women. He welcomed children and he gave nicknames to his friends. He radiated joy, pure undefiled joy. People liked being with him. Moral outcasts, felt welcomed enough to invite him over for dinner. Prostitutes risked their neck to come to him, and he could say, neither do I condemn you, and follow up with, go and quit sinning. Sin was exposed. Forgiveness was extended. That's grace and truth. And God, God is full of both. And how do we know it? We know it because he's made himself known. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know what God really is like? We look at Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's why people have found Jesus so incredible. 
That's why he stands head and shoulders above all the other great people the world has ever known. I love this quote from Napoleon who said, Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I'm able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. And this is the consistent refrain from people who have taken an honest look at Jesus, believers and unbelievers, that he stands head and shoulders above all the other great people the world has ever known. Why? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, my friends, I pray you have a Merry Christmas, that you'll gaze upon the beauty of what, what God did in Christ, that not just in sentiment, but in reality, in the person of this little tiny baby born in Bethlehem, the almighty infinite God invaded our world so that he could reclaim it as his own and restore it to himself, that Jesus is fully God in the form of humanity. 100% God, 100% human, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I hope more than anything else, that gives you the merriest of Merry Christmases. And so may you have a wonderful Christmas. May you have a great time with family and friends or whoever or however you're going to spend the Christmas season. May you gaze upon Jesus and be filled with joy as you remember what God did for us in the person of Jesus. Merry Christmas, my friends. I look forward to talking to you after the first of the year. <music>